This afternoon we're going to deal with the teaching of the Word of God with respect to the Tenth Commandment, and so we'll, we'll read what the church confesses about Scripture's teaching in Lord's Day 44. So Lord's Day 44 on page 558 of the Book of Praise. Here the church confesses what Scripture teaches in the following manner. What does the Tenth Commandment require of us? That not even the slightest thought or desire, contrary to any of God's commandments, should ever arise in our heart. Rather, with all our heart, we should always hate all sin and delight in all righteousness. But can those converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? No. In this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of disobedience. Nevertheless, with earnest purpose, they do begin to live not only according to some, but to all the commandments of God. If in this life no one can keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, why does God have them preached so strictly? First, so that throughout our life we may more and more become aware of our sinful nature and therefore seek more eagerly the forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. Second, so that while praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, we may never stop striving to be renewed more and more after God's image until after this life we reach the goal of perfection. And after the sermon, we'll sing the the next stanza of Psalm 19. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, many of us have been taught already very young what to do in the unpleasant case that our clothing catches fire. It's dr drilled into us, hopefully, that you, you stop and you drop and you roll. Hopefully we never need to use that information, but it's it's good to know. And this afternoon, as we consider the Tenth Commandment and how the church confesses Scripture's teaching on the Tenth Commandment, we are looking at a problem which is a lot worse than your clothing catching fire. We're, we're learning and being reminded of how to deal with sin. And how do we deal with sin? Well, the, the Tenth Commandment teaches us that we stop and we seek and we strive. Stop, seek, and strive. So let's start with the stop part of that. The Tenth Commandment is kind of a catch-all commandment. It's a commandment which comes at the very end. The first four commandments teach us our duties with respect to, to God, to the worship of God, that we ought not to do anything um, against His holy will when it comes to the worship of God. And the the fifth commandment through to the ninth deal with our relationship to our neighbor. And then at the very end, the tenth commandment says, basically, don't do anything against God's holy will. In the tenth commandment, God focuses on the very root, on the very beginning of all sin. And in fact, the, the commandment is so strong that it doesn't just tell us to stop sinning. It actually tells us don't even get started sinning. It teaches us a, a holy caution, a deliberate carefulness 
with respect to the contagion of sin in our hearts, in our lives, in our relationships. Now think about how careful we are with this coronavirus. Look at us here. We're sitting far apart from each other's family units and most of us are at home. We're so careful, we're so cautious because we don't want to spread the contagion and we, won't, we don't want the, the vulnerable and the elderly to become sick and perhaps even die. So we're incredibly careful. So here's the question. Why are we so casual with sin? Which is far more dangerous than any virus. Now the 10th commandment tells us not to covet. Don't covet your neighbor's wife. Don't covet your neighbor's house. And the key word here is, is neighbors. You look at what somebody else has, and you look at what you have, and you say, I am not satisfied. I am not content. Now, if you look at the 10th commandment, it, it mentions a wife. And we may think to ourselves, well, weren't the wives dealt with in the, in the, in the seventh commandment, which is you shall not commit adultery? Didn't that deal with interfering or desiring the wife of another? But the mention of the wife in the 10th commandment is not with sexual desire in view. It's more something like this. I'm single. And that guy there, he has a wife. Why can't I have a wife? Why didn't God give me a wife? I'm not happy with what God has given me. Or maybe I have a wife, but his wife, she bakes, and my wife doesn't. I wish I had a wife like his. Or I wish I had a shop like his. Or a truck like his. Or I wish I could play golf as well as he does. Or, why can't my hair be like hers? Why do I have this hair that God gave me? Or why can't I have a family like hers? Why can't I have what she has? Why can't I be what she is? Because God obviously doesn't know how to take care of me. God doesn't satisfy me with his steadfast love. I cannot find my satisfaction in God, in his will, his provision, his presence, his word, his spirit. That's what, that's what sinning against the 10th commandment is. It's a dissatisfaction, first of all, in what we have and who we are in our situation. But at root, it is a dissatisfaction with God himself. We're saying, you know what, God? You don't know how to run the universe. You don't know how to run my life. You're not doing a good job. And this is a dangerous beginning. And this sets us up for every other sin. It sets us up for sin, and sin, says the scripture, leads to death. Turn in your Bibles for a second to James chapter 1. And we see that that 
that scene is graphically described for us, that scene that happened for the very first time in the Garden of Eden and has happened billions and billions, in fact, countless times ever since. Look at James chapter 1, verse 14, where the apostle says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by, enticed by, his, own, by his own desire. And that word desire is connected to the word for covetousness, by his own covetousness, his own discontent. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And so that, that word desire there in James chapter 1 is, is in the Greek, the same word which is in the Greek used for the Tenth Commandment. And so the Tenth Commandment speaks about a, an evil or a sin which gives birth to more sin and which eventually gives birth, of course, then to death. And so we know what starts us off on the way to sin. If you can turn in your Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 21, and you'll, you'll notice that in, in Deuteronomy there are two different words used. Deuteronomy 5, 21, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, you shall not desire your neighbor's house. Covet and desire, two different Hebrew words. And when we go back to Genesis chapter 3, where it all started, where things started getting wrong, going wrong, Genesis 3, verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight, it's kind of hard because we're, we're working with the English here, but that, that, that word delight is uh, the same word that is found in Deuteronomy 5 in the 10th commandment a delight, a desirable thing to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired. There's the other word that we find in the 10th commandment in Deuteronomy chapter 5. So delight and desired is how it's translated. Those two words come back in the 10th commandment in Deuteronomy 5.21 as covet and desire. So that's the root of it all. That's where it all started. Eve was looking at the fruit. She had been given, literally, the world. But it wasn't enough. She looked and she saw something which was a delight. It was to be coveted by her eyes. It was to be coveted to make one wise. My eyes want it. My mind wants it. My heart wants it. I want it. I am discontent. I am not satisfied. God has not given me what I need. God doesn't take care of me. God doesn't give me enough. God is not enough. That's what covetousness, the sin of covetousness is saying. Now, if we look in the scriptures, we see that covetousness is really connected to being impure or polluted or foul. It's like a contagious disease. It, it spreads and it, and it pollutes hearts and lives and relationships. If you turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 5 for a moment, Ephesians chapter 5 verse 3, Galatians, Ephesians 5, 3, and, and see the connection here between the sins. Ephesians 5, 3, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness 
must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. See the company which the sin of covetousness keeps. It keeps company with sexual immorality and all impurity. But it's not just that. It's not just something foul and impure. But it is, in fact, a denial and a blaspheming against God himself, a rejection of God. If you look in just a few verses later, Ephesians 5 verse 5, look what the apostle says here. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, an idolater, someone that, that worships another god, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Now think about that. Covetousness is trusting in or desiring something or someone instead of or in addition to God himself. Covetousness is saying, you know, I need this so badly. I need this thing. I need this relationship. I need this, whatever it is that I want, I need it more than I need God. The thing I covet, of that thing, that created thing, I say to that thing, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. And so I will break God's commandments because I want this. I need this. It is as God to me. I can't live without it. And I need it so badly, I need it so much, that I need to turn my back on God to embrace this object that I covet, or this person that I covet. And so it's not a surprise that Paul says, you know what, you go down that road, you live in that sin, you know what that means? You will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. A life of continued covetousness, which is not repented of, leads to hell. Now, many years ago, in another province out east, I used to visit a family, and, and they had a sign on their driveway. There were, there were a few parking spots, and one of the parking spots closest to the house had a sign, and the sign said this, don't even think about it. And it, it, was, the, it was the parking spot of, of the, the patriarch of the house, the, the, the man of the house. And nobody ever parked there except him. Nobody even thought about it. The sign worked. And that's what, that's what, that's what the Tenth Commandment is saying to us. The Tenth Commandment is saying to us, don't even think about sinning. Don't even start. Hate sin. Love, righteousness. God is telling us in the 10th commandment, listen, I am good. My will is good. What I provide for you is good. So embrace that. Embrace it with all your heart. Well, that's the problem, isn't it? To embrace that with all our heart, that's the problem. Because it's hard for us fallen human beings to hate sin, 
and to love righteousness. By nature, we love sin and we hate righteousness. We love sin and we hate obeying God. And so fallen man, sinful man, is unable. And that's why David in Psalm 51, when he asks for forgiveness of his sins, he doesn't just say to the Lord, please wash me and make me whiter than snow. He doesn't just ask for the the sin and the stain and the guilt to be washed away. But significantly in verse 10 of Psalm 51, he asks for something else. He says, Lord, create in me a clean heart. Create in me a clean heart. You see, that's what we need. We need a clean heart. We need a new heart. We need, a, we need heart surgery. We need a different kind of heart, a heart that doesn't love sin and does love obedience and righteousness. And we need to be asking for that. And that's why in the next section of the Catechism, there's a whole pile of Lord's Days about prayer, and you've just gone through them as a church in the last months. We need to be asking that for ourselves. We need to be asking that for our children. We need to be asking for the work of the Holy Spirit, for the powerful, divine, sovereign, gracious work of regeneration, of being born again. We need that. And our children need that. Because asking someone that hasn't got that new heart Asking someone who is unregenerate to hate sin and to love righteousness is like flogging a dead horse. It's it's useless. It's not going to work. You can jump on a dead horse and you can flog it all you want. It's not going to bring you anywhere because it's dead. And you can demand with the law, you can demand from men, women, and children, be a good person, do the right thing, obey God. But unless God has done heart surgery on them, unless they are born again, unless they are converted, It's never going to work. It's a cruel thing to ask a sinner to live a holy life because they can't. And that should affect the way we do our evangelism. And too often, we do our evangelism backwards. We talk to people that don't know the Lord, and we think, well, you've got to come to church, and you've got to start living like we live. And you've got to start doing things like we do. And you've got to start reading your Bible. And you've got to start um, treating your wife right and and being faithful to your husband. And and you've got to start being faithful in your work and and not wasting your money on drugs and alcohol. And and you've got to be a, a person like this and a person like that. Well, that's not the gospel. That's not going to transform anyone or, or bring anyone from darkness to light. That's just flogging a dead horse because the unbeliever, the unregenerate, can't do any of that in any meaningful way until the Holy Spirit has changed their hearts. That's what's going to happen first. But even when we have changed hearts, even when we are converted, even when we have been born again, even then, it's not an easy thing to walk in obedience. Look at what question and answer 114 speaks about. It speaks about converted people here. It says, can those converted to God 
those who do have that new heart, can they keep these commandments perfectly? And no, not even the regenerate can keep the commandments perfectly. They, they can begin, but they only have a small beginning. Even the, the holiest Christians are only just getting started. It's also imperfect. We can't do it. And yet, God has the law preached. And yet, God speaks to us and says, I want perfect obedience. And yet, God tells us, I do not want even the slightest thought to enter your heart, which is against my will. Now, why would God do that? Why would God be so demanding and so strict when he knows that even those who are regenerate cannot keep the law perfectly? Well, there's a reason. Because God wants to drive us to the answer. God wants to drive us to the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the law says, stop. Stop sinning. But even with a new heart, I can't stop. I can't stop totally. So that drives me to seek someone who can solve the problem. That drives me to seek Jesus Christ. That drives me to seek forgiveness of my sins and righteousness, not in my works, not in my effort, not in my striving, but in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see that in the answer, 115. And so we study the perfect law, the flawless law, the holy law of God. It, it, it reveals to us the character of God. And the more we learn about the law, the more we plumb the depth of the holiness and righteousness of God, the more it exposes who we are. It exposes our sins, our sinful nature. And so the, the more we know Jesus, the more we know God, the more we realize how sinful we are and how we need the Lord Jesus. So what you're going to find is a Christian who has 80 years worth of experience in the Christian life is going to hate his sin a lot more than a Christian that just got converted yesterday. A Christian of 80 years experience is going to see certain things in his heart or her heart and say, I despise those things. Lord, please take them away from me. Whereas the new believer won't even notice those things because he has yet a long way to go in sanctification and holiness. And so the more we gaze into the mirror of the law, the more we learn about our sin, the more we seek forgiveness and righteousness in Christ, and the more we long to be like him. The more we long that it, it's no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. The more we long that we be transformed by the Holy Spirit from glory to glory after the image of Christ. So when the, the Spirit's given us a new heart, we don't want to just want to stop sinning. That's not enough that we're just kind of walking within the bounds and not messing up and doing bad things. No, we want to be like Jesus. We long to be like Jesus. We seek forgiveness from him, but we also seek righteousness in him. And so the Lord teaches us to stop and to seek, but also to strive. There's this built-in striving in the Christian life. And as you look at that in the last question and answer, the, the last paragraph there, 
You see second on page 559, or 559, yeah. You see second, so that while praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, we may never stop striving. Now, does that surprise you? to see that word striving in a reformed confession. It doesn't sound very reformed. I mean, we're always told, aren't we? You can't do anything. You can't contribute. It's not your works. It's all Jesus. It's all grace. It's all sovereign grace. It's all God from beginning to end. And suddenly we have the catechism telling us to strive. Well, what's the deal with that? Are we supposed to strive? Well, brothers and sisters, Sovereign grace does mean indeed that God gets all the glory, that salvation is a sovereign work of God from beginning to end without any merit of ours, without any works of ours. That's certainly true. But sovereign grace does not mean that the Christian life is like getting onto a train, showing your ticket and telling the conductor, wake me up when we get there. That's not how it works. Look what we read in the first letter of John, chapter 2. Just go back there for a second if you have your Bible open still. First letter of John, chapter 2. What does it talk about? It talks about people who practice righteousness. There are two ways to live. You either practice sinning, you sin and you sin and you keep on sinning without repentance, or you strive to practice righteousness. Those are the two ways to live. What does it mean? Well, look at, look at 1 John 2, verse 29, for instance. 1 John 2, 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Look at chapter 3, verse 7 again. 3, verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Look at verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God, who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So the Bible speaks about doing stuff in the Christian life, about practicing. The, the word for practice here is just the word for doing in Greek. So, so this is the gospel. The gospel says Jesus forgives sin. Jesus gives us his righteousness. That's justification. All our sins are on him. They're gone. We owe nothing. Then all his obedience is on us. We are perfect, holy, righteous in the eyes of God. So there's no striving for justification. There are no works on our part. We just believe. We just look to the Lord Jesus. We trust in the Lord Jesus. We believe on the name of the Lord Jesus. And believing in him, we are declared righteous. We embrace Christ by faith. But once you are connected to the Lord Jesus, once you are united to him by true faith, then something new kicks in, and that's called sanctification. And sanctification is that more and more Jesus will work on you by his spirit. He will transform you from glory to glory after his image. He's going to grow you in holiness. He's going to grow you in Christ-likeness. And that growth pattern, that growth process is not passive. 
It is a sovereign work of God. Justification is a sovereign work of God. Sanctification is a sovereign work of God. But sanctification, he graciously works in us by his Holy Spirit. And he uses us and our, he incites us to strive for holiness. Now, we've got to understand what this striving is here at the end of question answer 115. When the Lord's Day 44 speaks about striving, it's not talking about the striving of works righteousness, that I'm going to try really hard, I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps, I'm going to make myself acceptable to God through my merits, through my efforts, through my works, so that when I get to heaven, I can say, thank you, Jesus, for helping me, but thank you, me, for also trying your best and doing a part of this work. That's not how it works. It is rather a gracious striving. Do you see what the Catechism says? How do we strive? Well, while praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit. In that way, we strive, crying out to God, saying, God, I can't do this. I can't do anything. But work your grace in me, Lord. Work your grace in me. And so it is striving in sovereign grace. That's where the source of the power is. That's where the source of the transformation is. That's where the source of the sanctification is. And so Paul speaks about that, doesn't he? He says to the Corinthians at one point, he says, you know, I worked harder than any of the other guys. I worked. And then he adds, but it wasn't me. It was the grace of God that was with me. That's the kind of striving we're talking about here. It's a real striving, but it is incited and worked in us by the Holy Spirit. Now, this striving is a holy and a biblical call. If we look in the New Testament, uh, the, the Holy Spirit uses the, the idea of striving in the New Testament, and he uses a Greek word which is the root word for our word agonize. It's, it's a Greek word which speaks about the striving in the athletic contests in the arena where you just put all your energy, all your attention, all your preparation, preparation, all your focus in training and in running and in wrestling and in aiming for the finish line, aiming for the victory, aiming to overcome in the contest. And so it's a single-minded focus. That's the picture behind biblical striving. So if you look at Hebrews chapter 12, for instance, we see that in that chapter. Hebrews 12, just after talking about faith, the apostle continues to say this, therefore, since we are surrounded by so, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus. That's striving. You get rid of distractions. You get rid of the things that drag you down. You get rid of the things that hold you back from being more holy. You strive. You're single-minded. And that certainly does not describe a Christian life where you kind of do your thing and you live in the world and you're like the world and then, oh yeah, it's Sunday, I'm going to go show up to church with my tie. That's not the picture of a life of striving and sanctification 
in the scriptures. It is a single-minded focus which consumes all that we have and all that we are. And if you keep reading there in Hebrews chapter 12, we look at, the, at verse 14 and we see the same concept. Hebrews 12 verse 14, where the apostle says this. He says, strive for peace with everyone and strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for peace, strive for holiness. That's, that word strive there is that word agonize. Pour all that you have into it. Work hard at it. What does the Lord Jesus say in the Gospels? He says, strive, strive to enter by the narrow gate. Jesus never says, oh, hey, I died for your sins. It's okay, just relax and take it easy, and one day I'll show up and bring you to heaven. No, he says, strive. You've got to work. You've got to focus. You've got a job to do. You've got a life to live. Don't blunder around on the broad way which leads to destruction. You've got to focus. You've got to be deliberate. You've got to walk the narrow path which leads to life. Now, how do we do that? Well, again, not in our own strength, not by our own works. How do we do that? Look what the, the Catechism says. While praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit. That's the source of the power. That's the source of the change. If a lamp wants to shine. The lamp can try very hard, but it will never shine unless it's plugged in to the power. And if a Christian wants to grow in holiness and wants to reflect the image of God and wants to be more like the Lord Jesus, that's never going to happen. No matter how hard she tries, unless she is plugged in to the power, unless she is united to Christ by faith in the power of the Spirit, and she draws on that power. And she pleads with God to work that power in her. You know what the promise is for those who live that life of striving for holiness, depending in prayer on the power of the Spirit? You know what the promise is? Well, look at what Paul says to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, 7, if you quickly open your Bible to 2 Timothy 4, 7, look what Paul says. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. Now, when he says I fought the good fight, he's using that Greek word for striving, that Greek word from the arena, from the games. He's saying I have agonized the good agony. He has put everything into this. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. You know what God promises us? You know what the Lord Jesus will do? He will crown his work, the work of his spirit in us. He will crown his righteousness imputed to us and his righteousness which he made to shine through us. He will crown his work. We will reach, says the catechism, after this life, the goal 
of perfection. And when we look back, we will say, oh, Lord Jesus, thank you for your work. Oh, Holy Spirit, thank you for what you did in my heart, in my life. So here's the question. Are you stopping? Are you seeking? Are you striving? That's what the 10th commandment calls us to do. Stop, seek, strive. Stop sinning. Seek Jesus. Strive for holiness. And all of this only in and through the sovereign grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit in humble dependence upon God in prayer. That's how you access the grace. That's how you access the power. You pray. You pray to God. Well, how's your prayer life? You know, it's a measure of how much you want to be holy, how much time you spend with the Lord in prayer. If your prayers are kind of like, Lord, thank you for this food, amen. Oh, and forgive us our sins. Then maybe you're not going to be seeing a lot of development in your sanctification. If we strive for holiness, we long to commune with the Father. We cry out to him constantly and with heartfelt longing, says Lord Zay 45. You doing that? Would that describe your prayer life? Does that describe my prayer life? I confess that I've got a long way to go before my prayer life can be described as constantly and with heartfelt longing asking him for these gifts. We've got a lot of work to do. We need to cultivate a life of deliberate prayer. A life of deliberate holiness is only possible in a life of deliberate prayer. If we have an anemic prayer life, it's like unplugging the lamp. It's like cutting off the power. We're cutting off the glory. We're cutting off the grace. And so that's why in Lord's Day 45, the very next one, because of this 10th commandment and what it teaches us, that's why the church is driven to say, Lord, teach us to pray. And that's why as church you've just been through that section of the catechism. You've just focused on it. Because how we need prayer to draw on the power of the Holy Spirit to work growth and sanctification. So the law says stop, seek, and strive. And let that drive us to our knees to seek the Lord. Amen.